All right, let's pray. Our gracious Father, today is a day that you have given to us as a gift, and we are grateful for it. We appreciate so much the way that you provide for us and watch over us on a day-by-day basis. We thank you that we can grow in grace and in knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. We ask our Father for the situation in not only our country, but in uh, the area of Ukraine. We ask that your protection will be over those that are yours. We ask our Father as well that abundance of wisdom and skill and finesse will be theirs as they seek to uh, ward off this tyrant that is seeking to take over their country. We ask our Father that we, as your people, will do those things which we believe are necessary to help the cause out. We recognize that all aspects of history, all aspects of the future are in your hands. And so we sovereignly turn over all of this to you and ask that whatever takes place will be for your glory and your honor. Now, our Father, as we look to the subject of the day, we ask that you would be pleased to help us understand, give us insight, and make us uh, individuals that are more and more confident in the truth of your word. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. All right. Today, the Dead Sea Scrolls. It helps turn the gizmo on. The Dead Sea Scrolls, what are they? Why are they important? Uh, Let's backtrack just a tad. You remember last week, we looked at the Kephenom little scrolls, little tiny pieces of uh, hammered out silver and we discovered that there were just three verses on this thing. However, the Dead Sea Scrolls have hundreds and hundreds of fragments. While this is the oldest, this is the most voluminous thing that we have ever seen in history. The history of it goes back to approximately 1948, 47, and uh, the Dead Sea Scrolls are something that literally changed the whole face of the world as far as our understanding of the Word of God. It is interesting that when you go to Europe uh, in the late 1800s and the early 1900s, you see liberalism and form criticism and all of these things just attacking the scriptures as if they are a myth. And then, lo and behold, out of the blue, God allows these things to be found after 2,000 years, which is just absolutely astounding. Now, the history of all of this is that there is a little shepherd boy, actually a group of teenagers, and they are wandering around in the... uh, extremely desolate area just north and west of the Dead Sea. 
and I have been there on numerous occasions, and I will have to tell you, it is the most desolate. I have never been to Death Valley, but I suspect it's a lot like this. Like this. But around the Dead Sea area, which is 1,300 feet below sea, below sea level, it is arid. Almost nothing grows. The only people that live down in that area are people called Bedouins. Bedouins are individuals who uh, are kind of nomads, and they have little flocks of sheep and goats and things of that nature, and they just move from area to area to area. They're in a permanent tent, a permanent area, uh, a permanent state of transition. And uh, they will put their flocks in one particular area, and what little bit of uh, vegetation there is uh, after their sheep or goats uh, eat that, they just pick up and move to the next area. And so here we have a group of teenage boys just wandering around and exploring. And they happen to come across a shaft and rather than go in it, the thing that they do is they toss a rock down this shaft and they hear it hit a, uh, a jar and they hear it cracking, they hear it breaking. Well, <laughs> curiosity gets the best of them. So what they do is they enter into this cave. Now, in a minute, you'll see the, uh, the situation the area of Qumran is right up there north of the, uh, at the north end of the Dead Sea. And when you think of the various caves that are there, please keep in mind that what you have, well, this, this is the area, an artist's rendition of what the area of Qumran, the Qumran community, looked like during their time there. And uh, it was probably during what, you, what we call the intertestamental period, which is from the end of the Old Testament era to the beginning of the New Testament era. There's this era of time with, that we call 400 silent years. Why do we call them the 400 silent years? There's nothing recorded about it. Well, there's what? Is it because there might not be anything recorded about them? No, well, no scripture. No scripture. The re revelation from God doesn't take place during... Now, it's, it's just a phrase, all right? Uh, God is still... He's still around. He's not absent. But we just call it that, for lack of a better term. This, of course, is what it looks like today. And uh, archaeologists have uh, done some work there. They've tried to imagine... And you can see that the, the effects, there's probably some multi-story buildings there. There are baptismal fonts. There's all kinds of things. There are reservoirs and everything of that nature. The thing that's so interesting, yes? So where would the caves be on that? Uh, the caves, the cave, hang on, okay. we'll get there. The caves are virtually all over. The caves are not located right there close to the Qumran area. The caves are literally spread all over an area. And the interesting thing is, in just about every single one of these caves, from cave one all the way down to cave 12, they find some fragments 
or scrolls in those caves. And of course, they're situated virtually all over the area. Now, you can immediately see to just get to the cave and to try to get in the cave is a chore. More mature people would not try it. <laughs> but teenage boys would, all right? Now, the interesting thing about these early finds is that once these boys found it, they had no idea what they had. They had no idea. But word started getting out. The first <laughs> scrolls that we know of were taken to Bethlehem, and a rabbi looked at them, and he realized what he had. Now, this is over a period of time, from about 1947 to about 1952. And little by little, these boys would tell people, well, we found them here. Well, as soon as the authorities found out, and as soon as the scholars found out, the Israeli government, who had just taken over this area, starts putting the uh, restrictions on finding things. So they, they farm out excavations in this entire area, and little by little by little, more and more caves are found, and more and more scrolls and fragments are discovered. <laughs> Here's some more areas where there are caves, uh, does it look desolate? It's desolate. The interesting thing about the soil here is that most of the country that we know of, when it rains, the moisture goes into the ground. The interesting thing about this area is that the moisture does not go into the ground, the moisture rolls off. Let me back up just a little bit and see uh, if you can see this. Yeah. Oh, here is the Wadi Qumran. A Wadi is a seasonal creek. It doesn't flow all the time. It just flows during a rainstorm and after the rainstorm, and as soon as the water rolls off the ground, into a tributary, uh, from the tributary into wherever, then it dries up until the next rain. And so this is the kind of soil, if you can call it that, that we have all around this area. That is why it is so dry and so desolate. Let me, uh, let me move ahead again. This particular shot is where the original Isaiah scroll was found. It is the most significant find, and it is the one that is right closest to the Qumran community. You can stand at the Qumran community and look up toward this cave. Now you can immediately see, well, let me get another shot here. You can immediately see that it would probably be a little dicey to get there. But that's where they decided to hide the cave, or the fragments and scrolls. And uh, whether these teenage boys came along and saw that, that uh, top hole in the uh, side of the hill and threw something down there, we're, we don't know. The story is kind of muddled a little bit. We know only fragments of it. 
But anyway, that's the situation. Now, <clears throat> the interesting thing about these caves is you can look, you can see, and this is looking up to it, uh, it would not be easy to traverse that. But this particular community realized if we are going to store these things and preserve these things for time, and I don't think they ever realized the significance of it, we need to hide them in a place that's going to be virtually inaccessible. And so that's exactly what they did. Inside the caves, they looked like this. How many of you have been to uh, the Carlsbad Caverns? All right, most of you have. Uh, that's not what these caves look like. <laughs> How many of you have been to Timpanogos Cave? All right, most of you. Uh, it's probably a little bit more like that, and, but it doesn't have the long, lengthy shaft going from one end to the other end. These are just places in the side of the hill, and they're stashed away. There's another rendition of it. Whether these people actually made these caves or not, we're really not certain. The what? Someone stacked rocks up there. Uh, I think they did. Most of the scrolls were stored in this kind of a fixture. And uh, you can see how they would be able to slide the scroll in, put the lid on it, and protect it. Now, the things that the scrolls were made of was papyrus and vellum. Papyrus comes from a plant and it is most prominent along the Nile River. And they would take, uh, well, picture it like this. They would take corn, something like corn stalks and they would line a bunch of corn stalks up like this, beat them down, flatten them out, and then they would put another group like this. And then they would put another group like that over the top of that. And they would, they would pressurize it and stamp it out, dry it out, and that became the ancient paper of the, of the world at that time and they would be able to write on it. Now, the question I have is, how long do you think that stuff lasts? Not very long. Just long enough to get the message out, and it would deteriorate in possibly 100 years, or even less than that, under the most ideal conditions. The other is vellum. Vellum is the skin of animals like sheep and goats where they would skin the animal, take the fur off of one side, dry it out. Of course, it would be stiff, so they would have to, they would have to put some sort of a material on it or, or agent on it to, so it would be flexible, but then they would also write on that. Now, those were the two most popular things that they found at the Dead Sea. 
Now, up to this point in time, the things that we have seen up to this point is they would chisel messages in rocks, but obviously that became a little bit more cumbersome, so they went to papyrus and vellum. And most of the findings at the Dead Sea are papyrus or vellum, and you can see uh, how these, these clay jars were as well as where the, uh, the clay jars are stored. Okay, the Dead Sea Scrolls comprise a vast collection of Jewish documents written in Hebrew, Aramaic, and Greek. They include manuscript fragments of every book in the Hebrew Bible except the book of Esther. All of them created nearly 1,000 years earlier than any previous known Old Testament manuscript. We're going to be looking at that aspect of in a minute. And this, of course, what is what makes it so significant. The Dead Sea Scrolls, 40,000 scroll fragments were found in jars in 11 different caves. 35,000 scroll fragments from 400 manuscripts were found in cave four. Uh, that, that would be significant. All scrolls were produced prior to the time of Christ and the apostles and before Jerusalem is destroyed by the Romans. Literary remains of a community that lived at Qumran from, and this of course is prior to the time of Christ up until just after the time of Christ. This was an isolated group of people that lived down there. They did not want to be part of the Jewish community. They did not want to be part of society. They isolated themselves. And one of the tasks that they saw as important is preserving the text of the Old Testament. Now, why Esther is not part of it, we don't know. I'll ask more something about that in a minute. The manuscripts that had the most abundance was Psalms. They found more manuscripts and fragments from the book of Psalms, and then Deuteronomy, then Isaiah. Now the interesting thing about these documents is while they found fragments from the Psalms and fragments from Deuteronomy, they actually found scrolls, entire scrolls of the book of Isaiah. It is interesting that those top three, Psalms, Deuteronomy, and Isaiah, are the most frequently quoted books in the New Testament. That I think is kind of interesting. Esther is absent. What other interesting, significant thing about Esther do, do we know of? No mention of God. No How's that? No mention of God. There is not one mention of God's name or anything. In fact, it is almost intentionally left out. When I think it's Mordecai says to Esther, we'll find help from another place. That's, that's as close as they get to mentioning God, just another place. All right, now, classifying the Dead Sea Scrolls. Jewish literature, there are over 400 different documents or fragments of Jewish literature manuscripts. 
Uh, Jewish literature would include such things as the Apocrypha. It would also include such things as, and I'm not swearing, all right, the Pseudepigrapha. What in the world is that? I'm not going to tell you, all right? That's just what the class, scholars classify it. Another is the sectarian text. When we say the sectarian text, because this was an isolated group of people, these are the texts that would tell us why they are isolated. Uh, I suppose the closest thing to it today is denominational distinctives. Can you possibly imagine? Denomination is something, not something new. It's been around since the beginning of time. This is just an isolated group of people preserving their particular tradition. Then last of all, you have the biblical text, approximately 200 manuscripts or fragments from these various texts. Of course, all of them, all the Bible is represented, in a we're talking Old Testament here now, except the book of Esther. The uh, interesting thing is, and I'm just suggesting, this really is probably better categor categorized, and I don't suspect anybody will change it, the Dead Sea Library as opposed to the Dead Sea Scrolls, because the percentage of fragments from the Bible is very, very small compared to all of the other documents that were found. Uh, and, that, and, and I am in no way minimizing the significance of the biblical text documents. Okay, if you go to Israel, the bulk of the manuscripts and fragments that were found are in this museum. Uh, it is called the Shrine of the Book. The Shrine of the Book. It has no natural air conditioning system. They keep it purpose, they, they monitor the temperature, they monitor the humidity. Everything in there is very, very closely monitored to preserve the documents that they have in there. Uh, it is interesting that the Isaiah scroll uh, is only viewed so many hours a day because they don't want any kind of artificial or natural light on these documents because they say over time they will deteriorate. The interesting thing about this is if you look at the shape, what, uh, what, what does it look like? Huh? A UFO. <laughs> Very good point. It's, it looks like the top of one of those jars, right? So, and I suspect there is a, a cellar, and they bring that thing up. Now, let me just show you. Uh, this is what it looks like inside. Uh, quite, quite fascinating. And then, of course, you see the... Uh, the artist's rendition or the architect's rendition of what the end of a scroll would look like. This is not the original of the Isaiah scroll because they don't show it like that. That would, that would cause it to deteriorate faster. But if you want to, you can get up there 
if you're so inclined, and read it. I gotta tell you a story here in a minute. This is probably what many of the scrolls looked like when they were first discovered outside of jars. Now, there were discovered a lot discovered in jars, but outside of jars, this is probably what they looked like. Now, if you can imagine finding something like that and the delicateness that you have to put in place just to unroll it and unravel it and clean it. Uh, I don't know how they did it. And I will have to tell you that from what I understand, when they started unrolling these things, they didn't do it instantly. It took years to figure out what's the best way to start unrolling some of these things. And uh, in fact, they're still studying have all of the Dead Sea Scrolls been uh, open, categorized, and looked at? Not by any stretch of the imagination. There are still some that have never been seen. They just take a glimpse of them, and so many have not yet even been studied. These are some of the things that they find, and if you look closely, you can see how all of this uh, th this is this is the way uh, this is the way they looked. <clears throat> when they start finding them, and this this picture obviously is taken around 1950 to 52, they start putting them out on tables and piecing them together much like a puzzle. Uh, can you imagine? Uh, I can't, I can't. But can you imagine how tedious that work would be? Uh, you just put together a how many? 1,000. 1,000. It took her a little longer than normal. <laughs> but that's, uh, I think she gave you that puzzle. No. How you doing? No, Chase wanted it. Oh, Chase wanted Okay, well, good. You, you'll eventually get it. Anyway, if you want to read the Isaiah scroll or a rendition of it, you can. And this is, this is a, that top part. <laughs> i got to tell you a story. First time I ever went there, I was there with my Old Testament professor, Dr. Bruce Walkey. When Dr. Walkie saw this, and he had seen it many times, he was excited as a kid in a candy shop. It's, I mean, he, he, first of all, he's brilliant. He can read Hebrew inside and out and all that kind of stuff. But he, and I'm standing next to him. He said, Ken, Ken, go ahead and start reading that. <laughs> what? <laughs> I passed. I passed. <laughs> but people that can read this stuff, they realize they are reading the scriptures that are thousands of years old. And it's, it's just astounding. Now, this is the scroll of Isaiah. And again, this is the picture in... I, what I want to do in the next uh, few minutes 
is to talk specifically about the transition from the oldest scroll that we have to the Dead Sea Scrolls. What's the oldest Hebrew Bible? That is a complicated question. The Dead Sea Scrolls are fragments of the oldest Hebrew Bible text, while the Aleppo and the Leningrad Codex are the oldest complete versions written by the Masoretes in the 10th and 11th centuries, respectively. Now I want to explain that statement. Uh, the oldest complete codex, everybody knows what a codex is. Anybody want to tell me what a codex is? A codex is a... I don't know a, what it is. Huh? I don't know what it is. All right. That, that's why I'm here, <laughs> I guess. There, you know what a scroll is. They would roll it up. A codex is, may I have your Bible? A codex is a book. Now, they found out it's a lot easier to find something in a codex than a scroll. Let's all turn to Isaiah chapter 40. All right, so I'm just, I'm, that's illustrating, forget it. So you have the Isaiah scroll. You start unrolling, 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 and you finally get to Isaiah chapter 40. Which it didn't have chapters. And they didn't have chapter divisions. So, you know, you had to be on your toes. You had to know how far, and then you'd read a line. Well, I need to go a little bit further. With a codex, you just flip the pages until you finally get there. So sometime between the Dead Sea Scrolls and a thousand years later, they transitioned from scrolls to a codex because it's just easier to compile and easier to find. All right, now, the oldest one that we have is the Leningrad Codex. Let me, if I may, go a step further. The Leningrad Codex, still the round, dates to 900 years after the time of Christ. The Dead Sea Scroll Isaiah document dates 200 years prior to Christ. So what you have is a 1,100 year transition. When the Dead Sea Scrolls are found, you're going back another 1,100 years to an older document. Now the amazing thing, and we'll talk about this in just a moment, the difference between this document and this document is menstrual. Menstrual. It, it just blew the mind of people. Because over time, what would generally happen? Well, things would change. Words would get left out. Now, one of the primary differences between the Leningrad Codex and the Dead Sea Scrolls is the spelling of words. And of course, that would be a natural progression. For example, 
the word honor. If you go back into time, the word honor has a letter in it that we don't have now. And what letter is that? U. U. So we don't need that letter. Sometimes so they would, they would abbreviate these words. They would, they would update, if you please, the way they are spelled. Now, this is the Isaiah scroll produced by the scribes of the Qumran community approximately 200 years before Christ, 200 BC. And uh, of course, that, that is essentially a rendition. You understand that? This is what it looks like. Now, I know you can't read Hebrew. I'm not much further ahead of you than that, all right? I can read Hebrew word by word by word. I know how to, how to make it out. But I want you to take a close look at this Isaiah scroll. This is a closer look. Whoops, excuse me. This is a closer look. And I want you to notice, by the way, the Hebrew language. The letters are just the consonants. They're not the vowels. We'll get to that in a minute, all right? Let's look at the Masoretic text. The Masoretes were a group of Jewish scribe scholars who worked from around the end of the 5th to 10th centuries, based primarily in the cities of Tiberias and Jerusalem. Each group compiled a system of pronunciation, grammatical guides in the form of diacritical notes on the external form of the biblical text in an attempt to standardize the pronunciation, paragraph, and verse divisions of the Hebrew Bible for the worldwide Jewish community. Now, the Masoretes, that is an Arabic word which means traditionalist. They were scribes and scholars that felt it mandatory, life's work, if you please, of preserving the scriptures. Why did they feel that it was their responsibility to preserve the scriptures? You remember what I told you about vellum? And you remember what I told you about papyrus? It doesn't last forever. So when a manuscript of scripture would wear out, what would they do with it? Well, first of all, they would make a copy of it and they would destroy the old copy. They would usually destroy it by just burying it somewhere. They, don't, they didn't want it desecrated. They would just bury it. So now they have a new document in front of them. How long it would last? We don't know. 25 years, 50 years. Then another document would have to be uh, produced. Tiberias and Jerusalem are where these Masoretes primarily lived. It is interesting that if you read the New Testament, Tiberias at the time of Christ was the largest city around the Sea of Galilee. It is obviously built in honor of one of the Caesars of Rome. But the interesting thing is that there is no record of Christ ever visiting Tiberias in the New Testament. He apparently just stayed away from it, never visited it. 
Did he visit at Jerusalem? Yes. But during the 5th to 10th century, after the time of Christ, these scribes, after the Romans came in and obliterated the area, apparently these scribes and scholars were still around and they felt it imperative to continue the tradition of writing and keeping record of the scriptures. So the Isaiah scroll produced by the scribes of the Qumran community, the Leningrad Codex produced in Cairo, Egypt, Cairo, Egypt, 900 years following the Masoretic text. If you do any kind of research, the document that we follow today, and I was going to bring my Hebrew Bible, we call it the Masoretic text. This is the one that is followed. Now, if you look closely, this is the Masoretic text. And you can tell that there has been a development in the way the letters are formed from the document a thousand years prior. <clears throat> this is a close-up look at the Masoretic text. And you can tell, I know you can't read Hebrew. They told us, they told us when we first started reading Hebrew, you have to learn how to read chicken scratches. And that's exactly, that's exactly right. But I want, if I may, to give you a difference in the Dead Sea Scrolls, the way the Hebrew is written out, and the Masoretic text a thousand years later. What is the difference between the two? The vowel points came later. The vowel points came later. Is there anything else different? There's spaces between the Huh? There are spaces between there, uh, Yeah. If you can imagine reading a book without spaces between the letters, that, that's astounding. And that, that to me is interesting because you've really got to know a document quite well to be able to determine where one word ends and where one word begins. Now, my wife <laughs> said vowel points. When I was in my first year at Dallas Seminary, they throw you into this class and say, learn Hebrew. There are those who fly with the eagles, and there are those who swim at the bottom of the sea, all right? I don't think I was at the bottom of the sea, but I sure wasn't flying with the eagles, all right? But the point that I want to make is learning the vowel points is really critical. And these vowel points are the little dots and dashes underneath a specific letter. Let me back up. You see these vowel points? Every one of them means something. Because all the letters are consonants. And so you've got this letter, and then you have the vowel that's between this letter and this letter. And I'll tell you what. All you think, you, you dream about this stuff. You can't get it out of your head for about the first six months after you're studying all this stuff. 
There are some people that can pick this stuff right up. It's astounding. Now, why did they need vowel points? Over time, over time, people lost track of how words were to be pronounced. And if they did not have the vowel points, they wouldn't know how a word was supposed to be pronounced. The Masoretes came along, these scribes and scholars, and what they seek to do, by the way, the vowel points are not part of the original. They're not part of the original. The Masoretes come along and seek to preserve the oral tradition as to how a word was to be pronounced. Because the way a word is pronounced determines its meaning. Over here on the second chart, the letter that you see there is the first letter of the Hebrew alphabet, which is Aleph. And you can look at all of the different vowel points that can go underneath that letter. Trust me, if any of you want to take Hebrew, good luck. You'll go nuts. But there are people that can figure all this stuff out. And uh, so on one side, you see no vowel points. On the other side, you see vowel points. Same document, same document. But the Masoretes decided we need to add the vowel points so that we will know how a word is pronounced because the pronunciation of a word determined the meaning of a word. That's what happened between the Dead Sea Scroll time and the Leningrad Codex. All right, we've got a couple more minutes. 1,100 years between these two documents. Obviously, the way words are shaped, or excuse me, not words, but letters are shaped between this time and this time is going through a process of development. But in addition to that, they're adding vowel points so that they know how these words were pronounced way back. And so, you remember I mentioned that oral tradition is something that was really big in Jewish and Hebrew society. The Masoretes wanted to keep that tradition alive. Now, this is modern Hebrew. Thank God for typesetting, all right? Can you imagine reading that compared to this? No vowel points, no spaces between the words, and then if you open a Hebrew Bible, this is what it looks like. But you remember I mentioned to you that there is almost no variation. There is some variation 
but there's almost no variation between Dead Sea Scroll and the modern. How in the world did they do that? Well, the next slide, well, let me back up and uh, explain this part of it. When the Masoretes would write a page of scripture, they would finish that page and they would look at the old document and they would look at the new document that they had just written out. With the old document, what they would do is they would count every letter and then they would count every word and they'd write those numbers down. Then they would come over to the new document. They would count every letter and every word. If the two did not coincide with each other, they would take that page of the new document that they had just written out and destroy it. So that there would be this continuity between the two documents. Hanny. I had heard also that they take the centermost word or letter. Good point. And compare as well. That's exactly right. Figure out where the center was. Now, uh, can you imagine how tedious that would be? But they wanted precision. They wanted it to be exact. They wanted the scriptures from one generation of documents to the next generation of documents not to have any variation whatever. Now another thing they had, they why, did. Why do you have that circle? Which one? On the left? I have no idea. Oh. I didn't do it. Okay. I didn't do it. <laughs> but I do, I did add the underlines, all right? If you can look at this word right here, it's the Hebrew word Y A Y H W H, which spells what? Yahweh. Yahweh. Now you can see the vowel points under it. Y A H W E H. That's Yahweh. And it occurs twice in this document. When the Masoretes are in the process of writing out these things after they would, well, while they're writing it out, if they were to come to the word Yahweh, which is capital L, capital O, capital R, capital D in our Bible, they would come to that word, they would put down their pen, and they would go and perform a purification ritual so that they would be absolutely pure, absolutely clean before they ever wrote that word. Now that's how much reverence they had to both the Lord, Yahweh, and the scriptures. They did not want to in any way desecrate that word, desecrate any kind of activity in the writing of that word, they wanted to be absolutely pure in the process. That to me is just amazing. We whip through the scriptures and we have no idea 
at the level of reference these people had. All right? This has been the fastest course on the Dead Sea Scrolls that you will ever go through. Hopefully it has been helpful, but when we saw the Dead Sea Scrolls and their precision and their similarity to what the oldest document that we had, it, it was amazing. Bob? Is this considered ancient Hebrew and does it compare to modern Hebrew? You know, I don't know about that, Bob. I think modern Hebrew has been simplified, but I am just guessing. Do you know, Tim? No, the letters are the same. There's no new letters. There's no new, um, the letters are all the same. The letters are all the same, yes. I don't know if the new stuff has vowel points. There, no, nobody uses vowel points in Israel. The only people that use vowel points are people going to uh, services that are not fluent in Hebrew because they don't know how to pronounce stuff Hebrew. So if we went right now and went up to Park City to the, to the, uh, to the synagogue up there, their, their prayer book would have all the vowel points. So, so, because they want to pronounce it the way it's supposed to be pronounced. No, but it, it, like a regular, any Hebrew book you buy has no vowel points in it. So, is modern Hebrew spoken the same way that this Hebrew was spoken? I would. I, I don't think so. No, I, I don't know. What it, I heard is that, like, if Isaiah the prophet was in Tel Aviv, he can read the menu for the restaurant, but he probably couldn't order. There's probably a great similarity to that kind of thing with Old Testament, or excuse me, uh, New Testament, Koine Greek, and modern Greek. Or like Middle English versus modern English. Yes, yes, good point. Now, one final thing, and then I'll let you go, and that is, it's just ironic, ironic, that the oldest document prior to the Dead Sea Scrolls that we have is called the Leningrad Codex. And it is in a library in, of course you know that Lenin came along and changed the name of the city from what? St. Petersburg. Petersburg to Lenin. Well now it has been changed back. They decided to keep the title Leningrad Codex. But the interesting thing is the country in the world that denies the Bible, God, all of the principles of Scripture is where the oldest Old Testament document prior to the Dead Sea Scrolls is in their museum. That's ironic. Hey, thank you, folks. I hope this has been helpful. It, 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 it's ironic and humorous, really. You're right. You're right.